Good evening, good to see you tonight. Hope you had a good afternoon and uh, glad we're back together tonight to study God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is where we will uh, be tonight. Uh, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Daniel. I think the first week in December we were here. Uh, and then we had a lot of different things going on the rest of the weeks of December. So we're back to Daniel. Uh, and probably tonight and maybe next week will be our final two lessons on it. We will probably cover uh, the last three chapters uh, next week. I've got to do some more study on that. So we'll see if we get to do all that. If not, we'll uh, continue it if the Lord will. So uh, Daniel chapter 9, if it stopped at verse 19, would be the easiest chapter in all of Daniel probably. Uh, but it doesn't stop there, that pesky uh, verses. They keep going and it gets uh, a little confusing there at the end. But we're going to look at it and see what we can uh, garner from it, what, we, what lessons we can take from it. I think really those first, as far as practical things for us today, things that you can walk away with from this lesson, the first 19 verses are really what you need to focus on. We'll cover those last few verses, uh, the last third of the book, and see what we can uh, try to understand and try to appreciate uh, from what God reveals to Daniel. Uh, but really, for us today, the, the best part, the most applicable part for sure, is these first 19 verses. We're going to read the first three, and then we're going to skip a few and skip down to verse 13 through 19 uh, and uh, talk about what Daniel is saying here. So let's, uh, let's set the stage as Daniel does here, the first three verses of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, from the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. All right, so there's the year, there's where we're at. Uh, this is after Babylon has fallen. The Medo-Persian Empire has come into place now. Darius is king. We've had lots of discussion about who this Darius is, his relationship with Cyrus, and all of those things that you may remember from previous studies that we won't get into tonight. But towards the end of Daniel's tenure as a leader amongst these various empires and these numerous kings, not numerous, but a number of kings that he has uh, served with. And it says in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books of the numbers of the years concerning which the Lord, which the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So, Here's what's going on. Daniel has been uh, in Babylon uh, under the Babylonians and now under the the Medes and the Persians for almost 70 years. Uh, And he says here, this is a little bit different than a lot of the uh, passages, a lot of the chapters we've been studying, because in a lot of those he's had visions or dreams or these types of things. He's not having those right now. What he's doing is, it says he goes back to the book of Jeremiah, what we know as the book of Jeremiah. He would think of as uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah. Uh, And he says, okay, let let me figure out how long was it that we were supposed to be in captivity? How long was Jerusalem supposed to be uh, desolated? How long was it supposed to be destroyed? And he comes to the number 70 years. Now, we don't know exactly when Daniel dies, okay? Uh, After the book of Daniel, his history gets a little fuzzy. We don't know exactly what happens. It seems as if he he lives to the time uh, when the king allows people to start going back to Jerusalem. And he may have even had some sort of part in in building that relationship where people go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and eventually they rebuild the wall and eventually lots, basically the majority, anyone who was uh, a captive taken away from from Jerusalem into Babylon and not just the city of Babylon. I think we've mentioned this before, but they're not just in the city of Babylon. They're all throughout the empire. They're all over the place. But he makes a decree, and it seems as if Daniel was definitely alive during this time, that anyone who's of Jewish descent can go back to Jerusalem. Uh, And he gives them blessings and allows them to have the the things that they need to, to rebuild the city. Daniel lives 
to be about that time, and that time is about 70 years, okay? Uh, and he goes to, and we even talked about this, the importance of this, because in Jeremiah, I think this was probably our first lesson in Daniel, um, that there were some prophets who were saying, Agabus was actually the prophet's name, who was saying, hey, in just, just a couple of years, everybody's going to come back. The king's even going to come back. And then Daniel said, well, that's great, and I hope that happens, but that's not what Lord, the Lord is telling me. The Lord's telling me it's going to be 70 years. That's what Jeremiah says, and that's in Jeremiah 25 and 29. So Daniel here, 70 or so years later, uh, comes back to Jeremiah and he's trying to figure out how long are we supposed to be in captivity. Okay, so he figures that out. Uh, and then in verses uh, 4 through 12, uh, he is going to, as he says in verse 3, he's going to uh, pray to God. He's fasting. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He is, um, you, you've heard that phrase, sackcloth and ashes. That's a literal thing. You know, he would literally have worn sackcloth. What is sackcloth? It's a cloth that sacks made out of that's why it's sackcloth. We may not think that, but that's, that's literally what it was. He's, he's sitting in sackcloth, and he's literally sitting on ashes. And it's the, but the point of it is, is this was the most humble state that he could present himself to God. Okay? He is humbling himself as lowly as he can and, and crying out to God, asking God, God, when are you going to restore it? It seems like from his studies that the time is coming. It's very close. Uh, what's going to happen next? And in those uh, verses, verse 4 through uh, 12, uh, he recounts uh, some specifically, some in very broad strokes, the sin of the Israelites. Okay? Uh, and then in verse 13, he switches it just a little bit and he starts to say, okay, God, we are sinners. That's what he said previously. And then he begins to say, God, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do for us? How are you going to help us? I know you won't leave us. I know you won't forsake us. Let's read it and see what he says. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity, all the things that have happened to us, yet uh, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. Therefore, the Lord has watched over the calamity and, taught, and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not listened to his voice. Okay, so again, there's kind of a, a wrap-up of those first few verses after he uh, recognizes the timing. Uh, he says, God, you've told us this is what was going to happen in the law of Moses, that if we turned away for you, from you, that all these things were going to happen to us, and rightly so. These things have happened to us. It's our fault. It's not your fault. We didn't turn back to you. We didn't listen to you. We didn't try to change our ways. We didn't repent in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And Daniel recognizes, whether or not the other, the other Israelites do, the other Jews do, Daniel recognizes, we deserve this. Okay, that's where his, his mind at, is at at this point. Verse 15. So now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned and we have acted wickedly. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Again, he's, he's recognizing, he's, he's saying to God, God, we recognize, I know it's our fault. You are righteous, you are good, and we have fallen short of your glory. Glory. Uh, and then maybe verses 17 through 19, the next time, maybe even tonight, the next time that you recognize shortcomings in your life, sin in your life, especially verse 19, but let's pay attention to 17, 18, and 19, uh, here's a prayer for you to pray. When you recognize your relationship with God, your holiness versus God's holiness, 
and, and your position in relation to him, this is the type of attitude that I think we should have. This is the practical thing that I think you should take home with you, okay? Verse 17. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your slave and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your own abundant compassion. Did you hear that? Listen to that second part of verse 18 again. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your own abundant compassion. When we pray to God and we ask God, God, please do this for me. God, please do this good thing. God, please forgive me. God, please help me in this. God, please bless me in this way. Uh, Daniel recognizes, Daniel, Daniel would say to God, God, I can't offer you anything. There's no reason based on who I am that you should do anything good for me. But based on who you are, God, please do this for me. That's the kind of relationship and and prayer posture, not physically, but spiritually, mentally, that I think that we should approach God. That God doesn't owe us anything, and certainly we haven't earned anything, but because of his goodness, because of his abundant compassion, maybe he would give something to us. And then again, verse 19, I love this. I want this to be my type of prayer that I would present to the Lord. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, give heed and take action. For your own sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel calls on God to do something good because of who God is, not because of who I am. Daniel recognizes in all of these previous verses, they don't have anything to offer God. And so the only thing that you can, you can beg to God is not because I'm worth it, not because I'm valuable, not because I'm good, not because of anything based on anything about me, but God, because of who you are, please bless me. And he talks about how, uh, especially for the Israelites, but we can think of it today as, as we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, the Israelites are God's own people. Jerusalem is the city of God. It is where his, his, uh, his spirit dwelt uh, when the temple was there. And he says, based on who you are, God, please bless us. So again, verse 19, I think that'd be a powerful thing uh, for, for you to think about the next time you're praying. And especially during those times when maybe you're, you're stuck in sin and you recognize that sin, and you, you recognize the temptation that you're wound up in and, and all of these things, and, and you need help to, to get out of that. And then we get to verse 20. Uh, and after this, it gets a lot harder. Uh, to me, those first 19 verses are pretty easy to understand and wrap our minds around. This is just a, this whole chapter is just a, a little different uh, than, than the rest of the chapters. Because in the rest of the chapters, usually he has a, again, he has a dream or he has a vision. He has something going on. Uh, but now he's just, he has taken the time. He's done some, some research. He's studied the word of God. He's found out, okay, it's supposed to be about 70 years that we're in captivity. And then he cries out to God, God, you know who we are. We know who you are. Please help us is basically the, the prayer that he prays. And then in verse number 20, see what happens. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sins of the people of Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, and on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, and while I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, touched me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Okay, so there he is. He's, he's praying. We know in, in previous things uh, that, that he is... Uh, this is not just a, you know, you can pray anywhere, right? I pray driving down the road sometimes. Uh, you know, you can pray while you're, sometimes I pray while I'm talking to people. 
Sorry if I'm ignoring you. Uh, but sometimes you, you can pray anytime. But, but Daniel is in, he's in deep prayer. And he's sackcloth and ashes and repentant, and he is just completely focused. Uh, and then Gabriel shows up, and it says this, the, the man Gabriel, uh, we, we know from other passages, uh, this is an angel Gabriel. He says that I, who I had seen in a vision earlier, uh, looking at the verses, we can see that, that he had previously seen Gabriel about seven years earlier. Uh, we don't know if he's seen him between that time, uh, but as far as what we have recorded, he sees this man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, uh, seven years before this, and now he sees him again. Uh, and then verse 22, uh, then he, Gabriel, made me understand and spoke with me and said, O Daniel, I have come now forth, I have come now, I have come forth to give you insight uh, with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the word was issued, so I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So understand the message and gain understanding in what has appeared. Okay, so Daniel uh, is praying this prayer, and his prayer is he's seeking the restoration uh, of God's people for God's glory. And, and Gabriel says in verse 23, at the beginning of this supplication, uh, and more than likely, he's talking about the beginning of this prayer that we're reading about in, in chapter 23 or chapter 9, uh, that God sends him. God says, Gabriel, go talk to Daniel. Uh, now, he's been dealing with this kind of question a little bit earlier in the, in the book, uh, the same kind of question about what's going on. So, so maybe it's even b- before uh, this specific prayer, uh, but God sends Gabriel to him, and he says, uh, again, at the end of verse 2, uh, verse 22, uh, to give you insight with understanding, which is completely ironic because I don't get a whole lot of insight or understanding by what Gabriel says, uh, but maybe Daniel did, and he just didn't write it down for us in a cohesive way. All right, verse 24, and here's where it gets complicated and difficult. Uh, Let me say this, Daniel chapter 9, especially these last uh, few verses, these last four, and even more particularly the the last two verses, uh, these and the misunderstanding of what these verses are talking about, specifically the 70 weeks that we'll talk about more here in just a few minutes, uh, have served as the main ideology for over 200 prophecies of specific dates for Christ's second coming, and that's just since... World War II. So what I'm saying there is there are people, you've heard of them before, you've probably experienced them, especially uh, if you've been around for a little while, about people who are proclaiming Jesus is coming back on this specific day, okay? Uh, And that specific day comes, Jesus doesn't come, uh, and it keeps on going. And so Daniel chapter 9, since World War II, so 80, almost 100 years now, uh, since World War II, uh, there have been at least 200 specific prophecies that people have made using and they have quoted or said I get this from Daniel chapter 9 specifically these last few verses and they said this is how I know that Jesus is coming back on this day Uh, and clearly none of those have been correct Okay, and it's, it's somewhat ironic that the, the Talmud, which is a, uh, a, a Jewish writing by Jewish authorities that was written in the intertestamental uh, period, so between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, it specifically curses those who would use Daniel chapter 9 to try and figure out when Jesus was coming. Okay? So even the Jews 2,000 years ago knew, hey, don't use Daniel chapter 9 to, to try and figure out when the Messiah is coming. Or when the Messiah is uh, coming back, okay? Uh, And then in verse 24 and following, uh, let's read it and then we'll try and talk about it and see what we can figure out. So here's Gabriel talking to Daniel. Seventy weeks has been determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. 
So you are to know and to have insight that from the going out of the word to restore the rebuilt Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat, even the, the times of distress, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it will, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end where there will be war, desolations, and decrees. And he, Jesus, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Uh, but in the middle of the week, he will make sacrifice and grain offerings cease. And on the wing of abominations will come for will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. I'm as lost as you are. Um, I've studied it. I've tried to to wrap my mind around it a little bit. Uh, Let me make some... I have no specific answers on what this is about. Okay, someone else here may be able to come and talk to you about it and figure it out. Uh, I have a, a good idea of what I think that it relates to, but it's not what most people would think that it relates to. A lot of people use these verses, again, to, to talk about and try to figure out when is the, the second coming of Christ. Again, especially some of our, our friends who might believe in uh, premillennialism or the idea that Jesus is going to come back and reign on the earth for a thousand years and that sort of thing. They use these verses to try to figure uh, these things out. Uh, he, he divides these, these 70 weeks up into three different sections. There's seven weeks, uh, which the, the word to restore and to build Jerusalem we sent out. There's 62 weeks to complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Uh, and then there's seemingly one final week where there's uh, this relationship between uh, the Messiah and the rest of the world and the enemies and, and what's going to happen there. Uh, and then notice uh, kind of what, what happens after this is we go to chapter 10. So, so Gabriel says these four to six verses and then seemingly he just disappears. Now he says, I'm coming to you to, to show you wisdom and insight. And he says these things and then he just vanishes. Okay? Uh, to me, and Daniel was far, far wiser than I am, okay? Uh, and he certainly had some direct revelation from God in a way that, that we don't have it today. Uh, but it would be like someone trying to teach you some sort of extremely complicated math and writing it on the board and erasing it as he goes and you just expecting to understand it. I don't understand exactly what Gabriel's trying to, to, uh, to get here. Maybe Daniel does, but he doesn't seem to uh, explain to us exactly what is meant here. And throughout the rest of the, the book in Daniel 10, 11, and 12, Daniel still seems to be struggling with what's going on. He doesn't seem to have a firm answer here. Uh, so let's, let's try to, to understand what we can here, what we can. In verse 24, it says, uh, 70 weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city. And there are six things that are supposed to be accomplished. Okay, six things before uh, the ending of this seven, 70 weeks. Notice in verse 24, finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. Those are the six things that are supposed to be accomplished before these 70 weeks is over. It's interesting, it is of note, uh, that the, the phrase 70 weeks uh, the word there is not literally weeks. It's 77s, okay? Uh, now, we would think, okay, well, there are seven days in the week, and that's probably why it's translated or thought of as 70 weeks. But even further, when people use this to talk about uh, this meaning, the, the returning of Christ, they, they never use it as literally seven weeks or 70 weeks. They translate it as 70 years, 
or they translate it as 490 years. Uh, they, they never translate it as literally what it says, um, but they're, they're dogmatic about the idea that it can't be 70 weeks, it must be 490 years or 70 years. So it's, the, the point I'm trying to make is, to make this have anything to do with the return of Christ, based on the amount of time that's passed between when it was written and where we're at today, you've got to do some stretching. Some stretching not only, certainly of it literally, but even of it symbolically. You've really got to stretch this and try to figure out exactly what it means. There was one, uh, one individual that, that I read about, I think his, his date that he got from these verses was uh, sometime in the 80s. I don't remember exactly when it was, maybe 1986 or something like that. And that day came and, came and went, and then uh, he, he revised his prophecy a few years later, and I think he said it was 2010 or, t- 2010 or 11. Uh, and he, he, of course, missed that one too. Uh, and then, then afterwards he says, okay, well, I'm out of the prophecy business. He finally recognized, okay, well, I'm not going to waste my time doing that because he, apparently he had done a lot of research and a lot of trying to figure it out and, and looking at all these specific things, kind of like in some ways what we've done and what we've appreciated about Daniel. Remember a, a chapter ago or a couple of chapters ago, there were very, some very specific um, prophecies that were made that we can look to and we can say, yes, that happened. And we can, we can see and we can recognize these things. But here, there's no specifics given of people or description or, or these types of things. I want to read you a passage from, uh, again, the book that I've used for a, a good bit of this study. And uh, I think this, this is where I would land on what it is and probably what most conservative uh, Bible scholars would land on it, those that we would um, tend to maybe not agree with but tend to uh, line up with in a lot of ways. I'm going to read you a couple passages here, make a, a final comment uh, and then, then the lesson will be yours, okay? Again, this is from uh, The Derision of Heaven by Michael Whitworth. Uh, Whitworth says, The final two verses of Daniel 9 allude to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, which occurred in A.D. 70 at the hands of the Romans. Jesus himself had foreseen the terrible event and declared it to be God's punishment of Israel for having rejected, rejected Jesus as the anointed one. On one occasion, our Lord recalled the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. That's Matthew 24 and verse 15. Okay, so there's, there's the strongest connection that we have scripturally, that Jesus himself seems to be relating to or talking about what Daniel was talking about here in Daniel chapter 9. And certainly, based on what he says and based on further history, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is important. As we read this, you'll understand why if you're unfamiliar with it uh, at this point. Um, and he warned his, fellow, his f- followers in Judea to flee to the mountains that they might be spared. Uh, the abominations mentioned by Daniel and Christ include the presence of the pagan Roman military as well as acts of murder by the zealots and the installation of an illegitimate high priest. After a siege of just a few months in the spring of uh, AD 70, Rome dismantled Jerusalem under the leadership of General Titus as if it were made of Legos. Uh, the Romans desecrated the most holy place by offering pagan sacrifices there. Titus uh, ordered only three towers of the west and part of the western wall to be left standing to demonstrate the, to posterity what kind of city it was. Maybe you've heard uh, today of the people who visit the western wall in Jerusalem where they put the, the letters and their prayers. Well, Titus in AD 70 said, hey, you're going to leave three towers and part of the western wall standing. And the point is to show that the people who come after one, this was a great and large city, and we totally destroyed it. And the only reason this wall stands today is because I decided to let it stand, is what Titus is, is saying there, okay? Um, it says the Romans again desecrated the most holy place. Um, 
So total was the destruction that Josephus, he is a uh, Jewish historian who wrote uh, the antiquity of the Jews for the Romans, uh, was forced to concede. Okay, so listen, he is living during the time of these things happening or shortly thereafter. He is someone who who knows uh, the Jews very well. He knows the old law very well. He's very familiar with their culture, with their religion, with everything. His is what he he, he concedes. Daniel also wrote concerning the Roman government and that our country should be made desolate by them. So the one, the one who would know the word, know the prophecies, be familiar with what Daniel was talking about, he comes to the conclusion, along with many others, but he's the historian who uh, writes it down, that Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 was talking about what the Romans did to Jerusalem. Uh, Titus uh, returned to Rome with nearly uh, 100,000 prisoners of war, and Judaism has never been the same since. Okay, now that's an important point to make. Uh, when the Rome, Romans entered and, and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and destroyed much of what was in the temple uh, in AD 70, Judaism, not the Jews, okay, you could certainly argue the Jews have not been the same since AD 70, but Judaism itself has not been the same. Well, why is that? Where do the priests come from? They come from the tribe of Levi, okay? Uh, where does the high priest come from? He comes from the tribe of Levi. Where do the kings come from? They come from the tribe of Judah. But the records that would, would name, you are a part of the tribe of Levi, you are a part of the tribe of Judah, you are a part of the tribe of this tribe, one of the, any of the 12 tribes, those records were destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So the Jews as a nation, Judaism as a religion, has never been the same because no one can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are Levites and therefore that they could be priests or anything along those lines. So, uh, again, uh, he brings back 100,000 uh, prisoners of war. And notice this conclusion that I, I wasn't aware of until uh, reading this in this book. Uh, but the Christians in Jerusalem escaped this fate. Okay, so Titus brings back about 100,000 prisoners of war to, to Rome. But Christians in Jerusalem escaped this fate. The church historian, uh, whose name I can't pronounce, uh, records how they, commanded by revelation, escaped the city two years before its fall for the town of Pela. Only then... He says, did God's judgment overtake those who had committed such outrageous, outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men? In other words, all of this happened because the Jews refused to kiss the son and take refuge in him, which is exactly what Daniel is talking about in Daniel chapter 9, that all of these things are happening because they refuse to listen to and to follow and to understand who God is. I apologize if you want more than that. I don't have anything more than that. Um, I think that Daniel chapter 9, the last few verses from history, we can look at and we can certainly see that there are a lot of parallels to some of the things that are mentioned here. And we've already talked about this in in previous chapters as we've studied, that these things would relate to events that happened in AD 70, uh, that a lot of these things would... uh, that God is talking about and, and revealing to Daniel will relate to that event uh, and to the church that would have been uh, established years prior to that. Here's a point that I want to make as we close. If you just took Daniel chapter 9 out of, out of context and by itself, it's a pretty depressing chapter, okay? Uh, the first, even the first part of the, cha- the, the book, the chapter is, is pretty depressing. Lord, we're sinners. We don't deserve anything. Uh, we're unrighteous. All these bad things have happened to us and we deserve it. And he still prays and asks God for help, but there would seemingly be no hope. Uh, But I hope you remember the other chapters that we've talked about before this. Daniel 1 through 8. How time and time again in the narrative of Daniel, Daniel 1 through 6, 
There seemed like God was powerless. There seemed like God had no hope. He had nothing that he could do. There was nothing that he could accomplish and that there were greater forces at play. But every time God acted for his people's good and for his own glory. So if we look at Daniel chapter 9 in that context, what we see is that Daniel asked a question. God, is this, this desolation, is this, this destruction of Jerusalem, is the punishment of your people, is it coming to an end? And God answers him broadly but without any details. He doesn't tell him when it's going to end. And ultimately, he really doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, that, that 70 years or that, that 70 weeks or however you want to look at it, that wasn't so much a specific thing as it was the idea of a complete thing. And some people make a really, really big deal about numbers in Scripture and trying to find patterns and trying to find specific things that they can, again, extrapolate and figure out when Jesus is going to come back and all those types of things. And I, I think much of that is, is futile. I don't think it's wise for us to spend a whole lot of time on that. But there is something there. Uh, And certainly the idea of of 7 and 70 uh, and and this idea of being complete. I think what God is telling Daniel here is that the the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of God's people in some ways with the Israelites, it was going to be complete. And it had not happened exactly when Daniel had asked for it. Is this the time when you're going to... Uh, restore us when you're going to bring us back and that wasn't the time uh, that, that he was looking for and God tells him listen I'm going to act I'm going to take care of things but it may not look exactly how you want it to look uh, so in, again in Daniel chapter 9 if you just take Daniel chapter 9 it's a confusing it's a little bit depressing if we look at it in the context of the book of Daniel the answer would be the same as it's been in every other chapter we may not see a way forward but God does and God can do something and I think that's the, another application that we can take from our, ourselves today is uh, with the things that we're facing in our lives, maybe we don't see something uh, that God can do or we don't see a way forward, but we can trust uh, that God can, again, act for our good and for his glory. Pray with me, if you will. God, we come to you this evening and we thank you for uh, your word. God, there are some things that uh, I am inadequate to explain. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you for the, the message that we can glean from it, uh, the applications that we can take. Uh, that we can come to you and that we can uh, pray to you, recognizing our own shortcomings, recognizing the fact that when we ask you for good things, it's not because we deserve them that we will get them, certainly spiritually, but even physically blessing, f- physical blessings, God. Lord, help us to recognize that the good things that we have come from your goodness, from your holiness, uh, from your compassion, Lord. And Lord, we pray those blessings upon us according to your will, and we pray those things upon us that we will recognize those and give you the glory and honor, Lord. Uh, Lord, we, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back, but we trust that he is going to come back. Uh, Lord, we, we look around us in our world, and we see that uh, evil seems to only grow stronger, and that uh, good sometimes seems to only grow weaker. Lord, we pray that you, that, that will not be the, the, the fact because we fail to act. Uh, Lord, help those of us who, who believe in you, who are your people, who uh, are striving to follow you, help us to, to, to act, to act strongly, uh, to stand firm. Uh, and to take a stand for you uh, in our lives each and every day. Uh, Lord, we pray that the the coming of Jesus will hasten. Uh, Lord, that we will be ready, and that you will take us home uh, to glory, Father. Lord, forgive us for our sins, and help us to be who you would have us to be each and every day. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Ultimately, the best blessing that God gives to us, of course, is salvation. Uh, And just like every other blessing, we are not saved because of anything good about us. We are only saved because of God's great compassion. 
uh, tonight, if you need that compassion, and you do, uh, make sure your relationship with God is right. If you're a Christian, praise God uh, that he has extended that grace and mercy to you and uh, continue to walk in that light uh, as he has given it to you. If you're not a Christian tonight and you want to become a Christian, we would love to help you in that in whatever ways we can. If you have any needs, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.